invite you to take a Bible and turn to the very brief book of First uh, John at the end of the Bible. You just go to the end and back up a little bit, and you'll come to this uh, brief little letter uh, of First John. During June and July, we uh, plan to bring a series of sermons from this book. Reverend Baird will preach on something else next week, but the other Sundays will all be uh, a theme, at least, from First John. This morning we'll look at the first chapter and a couple of verses out of the second chapter. Hear the word of God as I read it, beginning in uh, verse 1 of chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So ends the reading of God's Word. Let me lead us in a prayer before we look at this more closely. Our Father, we thank you that you love us and and have made us in your image. We, We pray now as we look into this, these your words that you've revealed, that you might give us understanding and change our hearts and lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Nothing beats an eyewitness. Uh, The other night, uh, a woman came to our house. Barbara and I were at home and and, uh, knocked on our door. And I went to the door. She was very, very upset, white as a sheet, and said she had gone to a nearby house. Uh, A window was broken in, and she was convinced there was an intruder in the house and uh, was very concerned. So I called 911 from our house only to get the uh, recorded messages. I've been told that happens, but I had not experienced it. Uh, that if you're calling about animal control, do this. If you're calling for paying a traffic ticket, do this. Well, after a few minutes, I got a live person at 911 and described to them what the woman had told me. So could you send a police car uh, because she thinks the intruder is still in the house? And the woman on the phone began to ask me the right questions, which I had no answers for. Well, how tall is the suspect? Uh, what what color hair? I said, I don't know. I didn't see anything. Well, was it through the front door or the back door? I don't know. I just know what she told me. Uh, to make a long story short, the police came. There was, uh, the intruder had already left. And, uh, but I, I, was, I, was no, I was no help as a witness. What we have here with, with John 
is that of an eyewitness, someone who saw and heard and touched uh, the things that Jesus said and did and Jesus himself. And so we want to look at what he has to say here in the opening verses of this little epistle, this little letter. But before we do, let me tell you about this man, tell you who John was. Uh, He, like some of you, was part of a family business. And he knew the dynamics of being in a family business. His father, Zebedee, owned a commercial fishing business, and he and his brother, James, were part of that. Their mother's name was Salome. He heard and followed John the Baptist. John the Baptist had disciples. He had students. While he continued to fish, one day John the Baptist told John, the brother of James, to follow Jesus. So he heard and followed Jesus He continued to work part-time while he was learning from Jesus. And then Jesus invited him, along with 11 others, basically to leave their jobs and devote full-time to learning from him. And that's what he and his brother did. So they left the commercial fishing business there on the Sea of Galilee, and they followed Jesus. And he saw a lot. He became a disciple. And Jesus gave John and his brother James an interesting Nickname or nicknames that he called them the sons of thunder. The sons of thunder. Now we can only speculate from what we know about John and James about what he meant. Uh, apparently they were loud and forceful type A guys. These were the guys that when Jesus was rebuffed at a particular village, they came up with a simple solution. Lord, why don't you just call down fire and destroy the whole place right now? Uh, They also provoked the other disciples by asking Jesus if they could sit on his right hand and on his left once he set up his earthly rule. That really ticked off the other disciples. So also perhaps they were quick to temper and anger, but regardless, he called called John and his brother James the sons of thunder. But a tremendous change took place in John over that time that he was following Jesus. And he remained strong, but he became gentle. He was straightforward, but he was loving. He was courageous, but he was humble. In fact, he was so transformed that by the end of Jesus' ministry, he refers to himself with a term that's not used for any other disciple. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, because of that and something else I'm going to tell you, we think that John was probably Jesus' closest friend on earth. Now, I say that because when Jesus was crucified there at the cross, he looked at John and he looked at his mother Mary, and he basically entrusted Mary's care into John's hands. And he said, John, you're to take care of her. You would only do that with a very, very close, trusted friend. Now, there's more about John. He was an eyewitness to all the miracles that Jesus performed. Uh, He heard Jesus tell parables and preach sermons and debate the religious leaders of his day. He saw Jesus transfigured. He was sent with Peter to make preparations for the Last Supper before Jesus was arrested. He was at the Last Supper, and then he was at the Garden of Gethsemane after the Last Supper where Jesus was praying all night and was later arrested. He was one of the only 12 disciples, probably the only of the 12 disciples, who was at the cross as Jesus died. Everyone else 
had run away for fear of their lives. He saw the empty tomb. He was in the upper room when Jesus appeared to them after his resurrection. He was on the beach when Jesus appeared after his resurrection. He was there on the mountain when Jesus ascended into heaven. After Jesus ascended into heaven, we know that he ministered with Peter. In Acts chapter 3, we're told that Peter and John were at the temple. They are taken before the high court of the day, the, the Jewish Sanhedrin. They are threatened and warned to quit preaching about this Jesus, and they say they can't. During the persecution of the early Christians, the early believers were scattered outside of Jerusalem, and Peter and John were sent by the other disciples to verify the validity of conversions in Samaria. We know his brother James, the one I told you about who was in the family business, was executed by King Herod. Now, when he writes this epistle, he simply calls himself the elder, the presbyter, the elder. He's old at this time. He's not the young disciple of Jesus. He's a man now, some think, as old as 90. I think he was in his 80s. But he's writing this to second and third generation Christians, people like us, people in their teens and in their 20s and 30s and 40s, who were not there at the very beginning. They did not see and hear the things that John writes. And he uses a phrase over and over in the letter, my dear children, my little children. Not because they were five and six years old. This is an older man who has walked with Christ now, who's been a follower of Christ for all of his adult life, and he's passing on things that he's learned. So there's great tenderness he has toward these younger believers. Let's look just for a few moments at, at why we should believe John's message and then what that message was. He starts off with reasons we should listen to him. And that is, he says, we've heard. Those things we heard. He personally had heard these words come from the lips of Jesus. And then he says, those things we have seen with our eyes. He is saying that he and the first apostles, the disciples, the original 12 disciples, heard the voice of Jesus, but they also saw the things he did. They didn't dream these up. It wasn't mass hallucination. He said, we were there. We saw it. He said, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. They had touched Jesus. They had touched the bread when Jesus told them to distribute the fish and the loaves to the multitude. They had seen these things and handled them. There's such an importance to eyewitnesses when you're studying history. Y'all seen the new program on the History Channel about Gettysburg? They show it almost every night now, last two hours. And it's, it's the same one program that lasts two hours. Ridley Scott, the great producer and director, he put it together. I have a hard time with Gettysburg. Every time I read Killer Angels, I get angry. <laughs> we should have won. Anyway, uh, so I watch, I put, I T-boat it, and I'll watch about 15 minutes, and I'll turn it off, and I'll come back a night or two later and watch some more. But what's great about it is I'm not picking up any political correctness, per se, with it, but they're, they're using primary sources, and they're bringing people to bear uh, that they will say, this is one of the soldiers that day was so-and-so from Jackson, Mississippi. He's this old, his family, and, and they're going off eyewitness accounts, and that's, that's, to me, the best way to study history. 
In Washington, about 18 years ago, the Holocaust Memorial Museum opened. Some of you probably have been there. I have not. Uh, I've read about it, and I saw a program about it right when it was on the verge of opening. And what stood out to me about the program was that artifacts, pictures, articles of clothing were being brought in from all around the world, primarily in Eastern Europe, that had been spared from the concentration camps, and a lot of this now was going to appear or has appeared in the Holocaust Memorial Museum. But what struck me about the program was they were saying that those putting the museum together were rushing to videotape interviews with surviving survivors of the Holocaust. Because here, as I said about 18 years ago, I can't do the math standing up here before you, but those people, the youngest survivors were now in their 50s, but most of them were too young to remember a lot of the details. Those that had the clearest memories 18 years ago were in their 60s. So now probably many, if not most of them, have died. And they were saying, we've got to get these people's testimonies videotaped now because we need the primary sources. My point is there's no better way and no more believable testimony than an eyewitness. And that's what John was. John is saying, we were there. We were there, he and the other apostles. We were eyewitnesses. And we not only heard these things, we saw them and touched them. And what does he say they all revolve around? He says, the word of life. This is what we proclaim to you. Concerning the word of life. What's the word of life? It's Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. They're talking about Jesus. That's what they are proclaiming. There is a great misnomer today that people say, you know, really all religions are the same. It's Christianity, uh, Islam, uh, uh, Buddhism, or, or others. They're all the same things. As one religious leader where I used to be said, eh, we're, it's all like a big grocery store. We're all going through different checkout lanes, but we're all headed out the same door. If you just study the, the read, if you read some of the writings, if you've not, if, if you read, I've, I've read a good bit of the Quran. If you read the, the writings of, of Muhammad, uh, he, he claimed to be a prophet, the last of the prophets. He did not claim to be God, and he certainly did not claim to be the way to God. He, like other religious leaders, religious founders, many times will say, I can point you toward a path that I hope will get you to heaven or whatever you want to call it. They say, I can point you toward a path. I don't know that any of them claim to be that path. Even Muhammad claimed to be a sinner, and that's a problem. That is a problem for many that, that, uh, that follow Islam today. And so Jesus said, I am the way. He himself is the word of life. He claimed to come down from heaven. No one else makes that claim. No one else claimed to come down from heaven. He claimed to be God. That's what got him killed. Because the Jews picked up stone, they said, you blaspheme, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. And he claimed to be the way. That's the word of life. And so that's what Paul meant when he said, we preach Christ. Because the message about eternal life is Christ himself. Then he gives us purpose in writing. In verses 3 and 4, he will proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. 
And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In coming to know Christ and putting your faith in him, there is a vertical dimension where we are reconciled with God. We now have a relationship with God. And there is a horizontal dimension that we have relationships and fellowship with other believers that we didn't have before. And so John was saying, that's our purpose. Our purpose in writing is that you might know God. And in doing so, he says, you make my joy complete. You make my joy complete. Now he gives the message. He summarizes his whole message in verse 5 with one phrase. This is a message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. God is light. That's a common metaphor in any kind of religious talk. Light means truth, knowledge, wisdom, purity. Darkness means ignorance, sin, disobedience. So throughout the Bible, God is called light. There's a parallel verse in 1 Timothy. It says God lives in unapproachable light. You think about light, it scatters darkness. If we could get some thick polyethylene plastic sheets and tape up all the windows in here and the doors and under the doors and block out all the light, it could be make it completely dark. All we would need to do is take a nail and poke one hole in one of those sheets of plastic and that light would diffuse the darkness. It would probably illuminate the room enough where we at least we could see where to walk and so forth. And so the nature of light is that it, it dispels, it, it runs out the darkness. And he says God is light. And now saying that about God, John's going to make a couple of applications. He's going to deal with a couple of false claims that were prominent in his day because there were heresies these people were being taught in some cases and they were living with. Here's one of the false claims. And each of the false claims starts with a phrase, if we claim. So verse 6, the first one. If we claim to have fellowship with God, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. This person claims to have fellowship with God. Oh, I know God. I have a relationship with God. But my life is marked by habitual disobedience. That I claim that, but I walk in darkness. Now, walk means lifestyle. It's not saying that Christians never sin. Of course not. But it's saying a habitual life, the pattern of the person's life. That's what, when the Bible uses the term walk. If I walk in darkness, meaning I'm walking in disobedience, this is a guy that says, oh, I know God. I've, got my, I've, I've received Jesus. I've, I've, my sins are forgiven. I'm going to heaven. So what if I'm sleeping with my girlfriend every night? So what if I get drunk on a regular basis? So what if I cheat and lie and do whatever I need to do? I'm forgiven. I'm okay with God. Grace, grace, grace. That's all that matters to me. I met a man some time ago, and he told me. Uh, I was in another city, and he, he told me, he, he said, oh, I believe in Jesus. I'm going to heaven. I'm a Christian, but God isn't telling me how to live. And I'm quoting it. I'm not paraphrasing. God isn't telling me how to live. And I thought to myself, but I didn't say it to him. I didn't think he'd understand. Well, I wonder why Jesus didn't apologize to the rich young ruler then. You know, when, when he would not submit his... The Lord to the Lordship of Christ, and he walked away sad when he came to Jesus asking what he must do to inherit eternal life. But that's what this says. If we claim to have fellowship with God, I know God, I know, I'm in the light, I've, I've come to know him, I have fellowship with him, but it doesn't affect my life, 
then what does John say? He says, we lie and do not live by the truth. That means you're lying. Lying to whom? Well, lying to yourself, first and foremost. Uh, Lying to God, lying to others. It's easy to deceive ourselves. That's the worst kind of deception. I think it's when we deceive ourselves. Uh, And so he says, if you think this, then there's something wrong. That's the first false claim, because God is light. Second claim is in verse 8, and this person says something very different. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So this person, he, he doesn't say, oh, I'm living the way I want to. I mean, I don't care if God is pleased with it or not. Um, this person just says, I don't sin. I'm as good as the next person. Um, just perfectionism. Uh, I, I'm right. I, I don't. Either they turn a blind eye and don't think they sin or think they're better than others. Or, and John says, you're lying. You're, you're deceiving yourself. Now, here's the irony. <laughs> when I recognized my sin as a teenager, when I heard the Bible verses about the wages of sin is death, and I first understood who Jesus was, and I first understood that he came to die as a substitute for my sin, I put my faith in that, and I thought I was a pretty bad sinner. I mean, I was very conscious of my sin. But guess what? I'm a whole lot more conscious of it now. <laughs> we had a training session here a few weeks ago on the journey group leader training. Many of you are in journey groups, and we'll be starting many new groups in the fall. At the end of the three-hour presentation, John Purcell drew a little diagram that made the whole morning worthwhile. The whole morning was worthwhile, but it would have been worth it for this 30 seconds. He drew an arrow going this way, and then he drew one almost like a, that would have been two sides of a triangle going that way. And he labeled this one God's holiness. And he labeled this one my sinfulness. And right where the two lines meet, there's the cross. Now that's a simple diagram. Two arrows and a cross there where they start. His point was, when you first put your faith in Christ as your Savior... You have some knowledge of your own sinfulness and some knowledge of God's holiness. But as you mature, your knowledge of God's holiness grows. Guess what? Your knowledge of your own sinfulness grows. And therefore, this cross, it drew bigger crosses. We need to understand the work of Christ and the gospel. That has to grow also. That is why often new Christians get very discouraged real fast because God gives you an awareness of your, and your eyes become more open to your own sinfulness in ways you didn't see before. And so we may think, man, I thought I was a sinner a year ago. Now I'm ten times worse of a sinner. No, it's just I've become more conscious of it, more conscious of the, the sinful motives or the deception or the hypocrisy or whatever it might be. And so we need, as we understand more of God's holiness and more of our sinfulness, we need always to go back to the gospel and see that we're made right with God through the cross of Christ. The person who says, well, I don't have any sin, and I'll either deny it or ignore it or turn a blind eye to it or medicate myself so much that I don't think about it, you're deceiving yourself because we all have sin. And the light of God shows us what we're really like. Well, what's the solution? He says in verse 9, that rather than claim not to have any sin, 
If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. To confess means to agree with, that we agree with God. Yes, yes, I have sinned. Yes, I have sinned, many sins, and I take responsibility for that. And God promises there, due to his nature, the fact that he is faithful, that he will forgive us. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I've told you before that uh, a little exercise I was taught as a brand new believer years ago uh, was to, when I'd have times of prayer, was to take a sheet of paper and to confess my sins in writing. I would pray to God, but I'd write them down. And then at the, at the end of that time, it was suggested, and I, I still do this from time to time, I would write those down, I'd write down all those sins after a while, and then I'd write on top of them 1 John 1, 9, which is if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then they said, tear up the sheet and throw it away. Now, maybe it's a little gimmick, but I think that's exactly what the passage is saying. God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's the basis of our forgiveness? How can we anticipate forgiveness? The fact that that we're remorseful? No, doesn't have anything to do with it. It's in verse 1 of chapter 2. If anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. It's saying here that Jesus is our advocate. Some translations use that word. He's our attorney. He's one who speaks to the Father in our defense. He pleads before the judge, before the Father. Here's the picture in my mind. If this could be a judge's bench, and God the Father is here, and there I'm seated, the accused. And between me and the judge is the advocate, Jesus Christ, pleading my case. Now, my father was a lawyer and a judge for a period of time. I attended and watched him practice a few times. But typically, as you know, the lawyer, if the lawyer's representing you, if, if he or she is your advocate, that lawyer stands before the judge and defends you, hopefully, with your actions that are innocent. Judge, my client is accused of breaking into that house the other night at 5 p.m., but my client was not there. I have six witnesses who at that time were with him on the other side of town. And so the advocate pleads based on the accused record. That is not what Jesus does. He pleads for us before the judge, but he does it not based on our record, which is bad. He does it based on his record. So he pleads before the judge. He advocates saying, yes, he's a sinner. The wages of sin is death. He has broken all of your laws and thoughts, words and deeds and sins of commission and sins of omission and so forth. But I plead that you forgive him based on what I have done, that I have been the, as verse 2 says, the propitiation, the payment for his or her sins. See? So the advocate pleads his record, not my record, not your record. And we might think, well, is there a limit on this? Is there a limit to his record that maybe only 100 people 
could benefit from it or a thousand people could benefit from it or only people back when John lived that he's writing to? No, that's what this verse means when it says he's not, he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not ours only but also the sins of the whole world. That doesn't mean that everyone's going to heaven or that everyone's sins are totally forgiven. What it means is his atoning sacrifice is sufficient. So as Jesus said, no one who comes to the Father will be turned away. No one. You never need fear that, well, if I ask for forgiveness, am I too late? Has the supply run out? Did I get there 30 minutes after the last was dished out? No. It's sufficient for the whole world. That's what it says. Propitiation. The turning away of wrath by an offering. That's what Jesus does. So let me leave you with this. If you ever go to buy something at a store and they've run out, you go to get a pair of shoes and you find, oh, I like that shoe, but sorry, we don't have your size. A book, a ticket to a ball game or a concert. They said, oh man, they're all sold out in the first three hours. Jesus, as our advocate, has unlimited supply. We can all step before the judge's bench and receive pardon because of what he has done, and that is unlimited. How do you know if you're right with God? It's recognizing the problem this describes it. You and I were created by God. We were made in his image to have life with him. Our ancient great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, enjoyed a relationship with him that we know nothing about except that they disobeyed God and they lost that. They died spiritually. You and I end up where they, we start off where they ended up, spiritually dead, cut off from God. And we've all sinned. But thankfully God sent a redeemer. Jesus Christ became a man. He said he always obeyed God. He said he never sinned. He said he came down from heaven. He said that he was God. He said that he spoke the truth even about the future. And the greatest miracle he performed was when he was raised from the dead. And he became a substitute so that God took my sin, that I've committed the guilt of my sin, and he placed it on Jesus, and then he punished him in my place when he was on the cross. And so we receive that by faith. We believe that. And when we do, we enter into a vertical relationship with God and a horizontal relationship with his people that we've never had before. Do you have that? Is that where your trust is? That's what John wants us to know. He wants us to know do we understand and do we have fellowship with God? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your work of sending the Lord Jesus as the propitiation, as the payment to appease your anger, anger due that is demanded for the punishment of sin. May we not deceive ourselves by thinking that we are walking in sin and yet pleasing you if it's habitual in our life. May we not deceive ourselves in thinking there is no sin. And Lord, may our sense of sin and conviction only be exceeded by our understanding and appreciation of your grace and mercy and the work of Christ. And we rest upon it. We pray in his name. Amen. Our closing song.